We are continuing our series on history that matters. History that matters. And uh, this morning's subject is modern science, excluding God in the search for answers. Excluding God in the search for answers. Now, we are going to begin at Genesis 1. And then you might want to just put a ribbon or something in John 1. Genesis 1, John 1. We're going to explore just some foundational biblical truth. That's what we tried to do in this series is lay the groundwork from Scripture and then dive in. But I want to address one thing. How many of you are familiar with, with the intelligent design movement? How many of you have heard of the intelligent design movement? Um, it was founded by a man named uh, Philip Johnson. Philip Johnson's a Berkeley professor. He was a Berkeley professor of law. And he wrote a book called Darwin on Trial, which really brought the, I think it was around 1991, which really brought the intelligent design movement into, uh, into being. He wrote another book called Reason in the Balance, and uh, he continued from there. And he's done a great job. Uh, I'm thankful for a lot of the work that he's done. But one of the problems, and we're going to address it all through this message what we're going to try to do is demonstrate where the problem is. We're, well, we're going to start with what the truth is. We're going to demonstrate the way that the truth has been defended. And we're also going to discuss some of the weaknesses in broader Christianity's defense of the truth. And I think that you'll find it interesting. So let's begin here, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, notice that there is no explanation for God. There's no uh, building up to this great being called God. There's the assumption of the existence of God. Right? So the foundational premise for all of Christianity is this. God is. And God never takes any time defending His own existence. It's a very interesting thing. And yet, we must understand that much of Christianity, and of course all of naturalistic science, and we'll explain that in a minute, but all of naturalistic science, much of broader Christianity rejects the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis as history. So this verse, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. How many of you would say that that's foundational? Would, would you agree that that's foundational? And yet, 90% of the Christian colleges in America would not teach that, or seminaries would not teach that as a literal statement of fact or as literal history. So what Philip Johnson has done is he has ceded that territory to the enemy. So he is going to say that the most important verse uh, for the defense of intelligent design or uh, a personal creator is John chapter 1. So let's go to John 1. Now remember what our title is. Modern Science, Excluding God in the Search for Answers. And what we're going to see is that the fathers of the modern evolutionary movement and the fathers of, the, of what are called the new atheists, the leaders of this group called the new atheists, their desire is to find answers without considering the supernatural. 
since the supernatural cannot be observed or demonstrated, they are not going in their position, since it can't be observed or demonstrated, uh, since it's based on myth and, and personal feelings, that science is only that which is knowable. So we're going to limit the discussion to only that which is knowable. That is the basis for modern science, excluding God in the search for answers. All right? So now, when you look at John 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The reason that Philip Johnson is going to begin here instead of Genesis 1 is because many people do not accept the first few chapters of Genesis as being literal history. And yet, as a New Testament Christian, he can go to John because apparently John is beyond dispute. Now, how many of you see the weakness in that argument? And so here's what they say. This is their premise. And, and the, the, that's Philip Johnson. Uh, I drove on Thursday to um, the Creation Museum. How many of you have not yet been to the Creation Museum? Would you raise your hand? You've got to go. It's just, um, I cried the first time I went. It's just, it's amazing that something like this is there. Right after the grand opening, I was in England, and I was at uh, Bunhill Fields, a famous cemetery. Susanna Wesley is buried there. John Bunyan is buried there. John Ryland, the old Baptist, is buried there. Daniel Defoe, you know, Robinson Crusoe and all that, he's buried there. So I had a, a, I've got a book, it's called Bunhill Memorials, and so I was looking for famous old Baptists that were buried there, and I had the curator of Bunhill Fields, there looking with me. And he was all excited about that book. He'd never seen it before. And my copy was from one of the early curators of that uh, uh, cemetery. So he was all excited to see it. So as we're going around, he said, now you're from America. Have you seen the craziness of they built a museum for creationists? And it was on the news all over England as if these idiots in America, can you believe what they're doing? And so we got into a discussion on that. And I think he would have preferred that he hadn't gotten into that <laughs> discussion. Um, but it was so interesting that here's a man, he's a member of Church of England, uh, raised in the Church of England, completely rejecting the first, at least the first five chapters of the book of Genesis for six chapters. Rejecting the, the, the literal flood, chapter 8. And so it was a very interesting discussion. And so I was so glad that Answers in Genesis, the people who were behind the Creation Museum, I was so glad that they had taken that stand, that they invested the money to do that as a testimony to the Creator. Are, are you thankful for that? So I drove down there Thursday and met with a couple of the guys there. One of the men uh, I'd spoken with before, uh, was homesick, and they called him, and I had a discussion with him about my topic. And um, Terry Mortensen is his name, and I, I, I owe a debt of gratitude to him for a lot of the information that you're going to be hearing this morning, and, and so I'm thankful for the work that he's done. Uh, in one of the defenses against intelligent design by the Answers in Genesis people, so you have Philip Johnson, who has done good work, but he would be less conservative than Answers in Genesis. Answers in Genesis, one of their big, um, uh, one of the, their key emphases is going to be the historical accuracy of the book of Genesis. That's why it's called Answers in Genesis. So here was the challenge to 
Philip Johnson. That John obviously believed Genesis 1-1 when he wrote John 1-1. Or he wouldn't have written that. Now, how many of you think that's a true statement? I do too. I agree with that statement. But it reveals a problem in thinking. It really doesn't matter whether or not John believed that. Because God had him write down what the truth was. What we can tend to do is put way too much authority on the scriptural writers as opposed to the Holy Spirit who had them write it. So where we are going to differ a little bit from Answers in Genesis is Answers in Genesis believes that the answers are in the Bible. We're going to be different from them in this. We believe that God has preserved His Word in the English language, in the Bible we hold in our hands. So what's going to happen is our approach is going to end up being somewhat different. Now, don't take this as an attack on answers in Genesis. How many of you heard what I said before I got to that? How many of you heard that? I'm thankful for what they're doing. But I'll tell you what, they could do a lot more if they just believed these words as they were written. Amen? So... What I'm demonstrating is the weakness of the defense of the Word of God by our friends. So Philip Johnson is going to cede the territory of Genesis to the critics and go to John and 1st or 2nd Corinthians for his basis. Answers in Genesis is going to defend the historical accuracy of the Genesis record. But they're going to cede the territory to the, the critics of the scriptures who put way too much emphasis on what the Bible writers knew or understood. So let me show you. Let's go to another passage so I can demonstrate why that's a weak position. Go to 1 Peter with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Wherein ye greatly... Uh, let's start reading in uh, verse 3, I guess. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Are you glad Jesus rose from the dead? Our hope is based in Jesus Christ's resurrection. That's good stuff. All right. Verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this revelation of our salvation will happen when Jesus Christ returns. That's what's being spoken of, the revelation of the last time. Verse 6, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So here we can rejoice that Jesus Christ is coming back, even if life is hard right now. Amen? All right. Verse 6, or verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's all of us. Any of you who have actually seen Jesus Christ, we need to meet after the service. We've not seen Him physically. Amen? 
We've seen him through the scriptures, but we've not seen him physically. All right. So then, verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. What's the end of true faith? Salvation. Salvation. That comes through Jesus Christ. Now, look at this. This, I'm going to demonstrate to you, what I'm doing right now is I'm demonstrating to you why relying on what the Bible writers understood is a very weak position. Look at what the Bible says. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. So the prophets who wrote the Bible, physically wrote down the Bible before this point, they, they searched the Scriptures about that salvation and didn't understand it. They're writing it. All right, so now look at what it says. Everybody look at your Bibles. Verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Okay, so here the, the Holy Spirit of God was in them, having them write down about the sufferings of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what the Bible's saying? But they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Okay, why? Look at verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. All right, so here's what the Bible's saying. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. Uh, he was bruised for our iniquities. All, he, the, Daniel chapter 9, the, the prince shall be cut off, not for himself. These are all passages of Scripture. Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All of those verses about the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Those prophets wrote those things, but they didn't get it. Why? It wasn't for them. It was for us who have heard the gospel preached after the Holy Ghost has come down. When did the Holy Ghost come down? Pentecost. Pentecost. So after Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit came down and indwelled believers at Pentecost. Everything's different since Pentecost. Everything changed. Anybody here saved? You've got the Holy Spirit in you. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. And that Holy Spirit will be in you until either you die or the Holy Spirit comes back to get us at the rapture. Amen? You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. Well, those of us who have heard the preaching of the gospel after the Holy Ghost came down, we are the ones who those prophets wrote for. That is for us. So for us to say, okay, what did Isaiah really know? It doesn't matter. What matters is that we know the truth now because God inspired those very words, black ink on a white page, that you can rest in, you can trust in it. And you ready for this? Evidence does not matter. 
I'm going to deal with that a little bit tonight. One of the big problems of our age is we as believers feel like we have to prove everything that we believe. That if I can't document or prove every statement of history or science from the Word of God, that somehow the Bible is weaker. Look, it doesn't matter if the ark, if Noah's ark is ever found. It existed. Finding it would be cool. How many of you would like to see the real ark? How many of you would like to see that? That would be a really cool thing. Finding it would do absolutely nothing for my faith. It happened. Josh McDowell said that in one of his answers books. That is so important for us to understand that the historicity of the Bible, the scientific accuracy of the Bible, is not based on its provableness. Is that a word? Provability? How about that? It's not based on that. It's based on the God who wrote it. Now, you've got to understand, in our age, we're going to deal with this. This is the premise of this message. In our age, that position is considered really stupid. Oh, you are so uninformed. I love to talk to people who think we're uninformed. I've got this... Uh, this Encyclopedia of Christian Biographies. I'm going to tell you about that in a little while. Um, it was written by Dr. Ed Reese. He was one of my teachers in two of the colleges that I attended. And um, I got a letter from him. And the guy, he, he's, he's brilliant. Um, that's a lot of work, right? And he sent me a letter. He sends out a Christmas letter every year. And last year on mine... He had a handwritten note. Jim, you don't understand church history. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things. I want to frame that and put it on my wall. I'm going to tell you why. He said that in a minute. It's interesting how when you disagree with someone's premise, by disagreeing with their foundational premise, the best way to defeat them publicly is to marginalize them and make them just look stupid. Yeah, the Bible is good enough for the Apostle Paul. It's good enough for me. That's what they say about King James people, as if we believe that the Apostle Paul was using the King James Version of the Bible. <laughs> that, that's the way that they portray us. Well, we're just all stupid here. I don't know. I don't know anything. Well, what are we doing here? It's just amazing. That's what the world has done. That is what happens with modern science, excluding God, in the search for answers. But what's so interesting, that has happened through the world in the way that they look at anybody who believes in creation. We see that, right? But it's also happened in the Christian world to anybody who actually believes everything that this book says. We're going to deal with that. Okay, so now, let's go back to, let's go, let's, well, we, we've laid a foundation. God said, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. How many of you believe that? Amen. All right. doesn't matter whether you can prove it or not. Now, the simple fact is, our science can be proven because God's word is an expression of reality. Amen? So it is provable, but my faith in it is not based on its provability. My confidence and faith in it is based on the fact that God, who created everything, said it. Okay? You see the difference? Let's not get the cart before the horse. Uh, the problem with the modern mind is we put the evidence 
before the faith. You know what happens if you go to evidence before faith? You go to hell. Right? Prove to me that there's a hell. Okay, I'll kill you. How many of you think that might be a weak form of evangelism? It, it, it probably is. You can't prove that there's a hell. God said it. God has demonstrated His accuracy by the prophecies that have been revealed in the Word of God. You can have faith in it. You can trust it. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said, The historicity of the Word of God is beyond dispute. But that's not why I believe it. I believe it because God said it. I trust God, not historians. I trust God, not scientists. I trust God, not preachers. I trust God, not commentators. Amen? When a scientist agrees with the Word of God, okay, I'll trust that scientist. When a historian agrees with the Word of God, I'll trust that historian. But where he differs from the Word of God, let God be true and every man a liar. Have confidence in that position. Somebody asks you a question you can't answer. That shouldn't shake your confidence. What do you think? You know everything? Your confidence should be, man, that's a great That's a great question. I need to find out the answer for that for you. Oh, you mean you can't answer that? Nope. Nope. Oh, can you explain to me ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny? Uh, we all know something someone else doesn't know. Amen? Most of you in here know a lot of stuff I don't know. The extent of knowledge doesn't mean you're right. All right, so... I want you to have confidence in the book that you hold in your hands. I want you to know it. I want you to believe it. I want you to be able to defend it. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer of any man that asks a reason of the hope that's in you in meekness and fear. Amen? I want you to have the reasons. I want you to have the answers. But it begins by believing this book. Because it doesn't matter. If you go into conversations with people, someone will ask you a question you don't know the answer to. That should never shake your faith. Because I can ask them a hundred they can't answer. All right? Now, you know, like wire holes empty. Really important things like that. All right, so foundation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Foundation. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Isn't that right? God created the entire world out of nothing. He started with nothing, and He created it out of nothing. Another really important foundational principle. God is transcendent. God, ready for this? Do you know what God needs from you? Nothing. Do you know what God needs from His creation? Nothing. He exists completely self-sustaining and self-satisfying outside of any creation. He existed before the creation. If He chose to end the creation, He would exist after the creation. That He is completely outside. See, the pantheistic system puts God in creation. So if you cut down a tree, you're hurting God. Right? If you kill an animal, you're hurting God. In India, people starve to death because they're worshiping those animals. You don't want to kill it. You're killing one of your gods. Well, I hope to eat some of their gods here in a little while after church. Amen? If we're not supposed to eat animals, why did God make them out of meat? So it's very important to understand that that pantheistic worldview, that God is in creation... God is only in creation 
when He chooses to be in creation. That's the difference. So God is transcendent. He is completely outside of His creation. But you know what the beauty of the Christian faith is? God is also imminent. He has chosen to come near. And that's what Christmas is about. The God of the ages chose to enter His creation. That's a very special God. That's different than the God of Islam. That's different than Hinduism. That's different than Buddhism, which is basically atheistic. It's different than all of these other religions. The Christian faith, God is transcendent and imminent, and He wants to know you. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for you and for me. That's foundational. Now, go with me to Psalm chapter 14. Psalm 14. Atheism was not invented in the mind of man. God identified it here. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. There's a lot of fools in the world, right? It's so foolish. We talked about this in our Sunday school class that for most of human history, the idea of there being no God was a foreign concept. The, the word atheist was not found in a dictionary until 1548. There's no reason for the word. Who doesn't believe in God? What are you, stupid? That was the idea. That was the understanding. So this idea of atheism is a relatively new concept that came out of the Enlightenment period. In the, in the Enlightenment, they were looking for truth apart from God. That led to the French Revolution, led to many other things, but that was the idea, looking for truth apart from God, modern science excluding God, in the search for answers. But God said that's a very foolish, a very foolish position. And if they don't learn it now, look at Revelation chapter 14. Tribulation period. Lord Jesus Christ returns, takes the believers out. The Antichrist rises up. There are seven years of tribulation on the earth. During that seven years of tribulation, God seals 144,000 Jewish male virgins to preach the gospel. He also has an angel come to preach the gospel around the world. Look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. You see, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God has revealed Himself, according to Romans chapter 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, even His power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The Bible says that God has revealed Himself to everyone. That's why you've got to be an absolute fool not to believe in God. That's what the Bible says. Right? And we all know that that's true intrinsically, in our, in our very being, we know that that's true. The old adage is there are no uh, atheists in foxholes. Why? When it gets right down to it, man, you're going you're gonna to know what the truth is. So it is a foolish concept to say that there is no God. So God created the heavens and the earth, and He told us that He did. 
God told us that it was through the agency of the Holy Spirit, through the word of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1. Remember the Godhead involved in creation. God the Father ordained. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God the Son spoke. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. That's God the Son. God the Holy Spirit, Genesis 1 and verse 2. And the Spirit moved on the face of the waters. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Godhead, all involved in the creation. So God reveals that in Genesis 1 and then Exodus chapter 20 and all through the scriptures. God identifies himself as the creator. You get to the New Testament, the the revelation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as the creator all through the, the New Testament. Those that reject it, well, the judgment is going to come and the angel is going to preach, fear him. Worship Him that created the heaven and the earth and the seas and the fountains of the seas. So you can either believe it now or you can believe it later. Amen? All right. So that's the foundation of the creation. All right. So now, believe it or not, we're going to go pretty fast now. That's the foundation. The Bible's more important than all this other stuff. So we'll get that done. All right. So this is our two lines of church history. This has been our, our model throughout this whole series. Here you have the apostles, Jesus Christ, and the apostles continue in the, apostle, uh, the, the, they continue in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Their followers continue in the apostles' doctrine. They move from Jerusalem to Antioch. They're first called Christians in Antioch. They had their own Bible. They have their own church government, their own evangelism. And that has extended all the way through all of history. And when Jesus Christ comes back for us, we're going to go up. Amen? Over here, you have Antioch. You have uh, Alexandria. Antioch of Syria, Alexandria, Egypt. Out of Alexandria, Egypt, there came a false religion that's revealed itself in many different forms, primarily through the Roman Catholic system. After the Reformation, 1517, uh, you had a a group of Protestants that came back and and believed in one God, one faith, sola scriptura, sola gratia, uh, sola fide, all of those fides, all of those solas. They come back here, they agree with us, all right? But here in the end times, you see all of those major denominations going back to this one world system that will lead to Antichrist. How many of you can see that happening already? All right, so that's where we are. Now, don't forget this model. Here, let's get into some some teaching. Tonight, we are going to look at the new atheists. So I've got some of that information. We're just going to skip through that. But where do we find the roots of this modern antagonism toward Christianity? How many of you, when you went to college, experienced uh, some of that antagonism toward Christianity? Would you raise your hand? Some of you have experienced that. Uh, This world system hates the idea of the creator because if there's a creator, then they are responsible to him and accountable to him. All right. So now what is this hegemony? Hegemony. It means dominance of one social group or state over others. Dominance of one social group or state over others. Now, I'm sure most of us have seen that word before, but you've got to understand the way that it works in society. There is a cultural hegemony. What that does is the cool people, and this is what has happened with the new atheists. The new atheists are the cool people. They're the in crowd. And the cool people, the fun people, the elites, they're the ones who set the standards for society, for what is acceptable behavior and what is not acceptable behavior. 
the cool people. How many of you remember moon boots? Parachute pants. Members only jackets. Y'all remember that stuff? The skinny little tie, Don Johnson. You know, all that stuff. You remember that? That's, that's hegemony. That's a, that's a social or a cultural hegemony. Everybody has to have the latest thing. I'm going to give you a demonstration of hegemony today. All right? Who is that? Justin Bieber. I don't know him. I've never, I've never seen anything that he does. I, I just know who he is because of the stupid haircut. But it's so interesting the way that he has influenced the culture. How old is Justin Bieber? Somebody tell me. He's 16. I've got socks that are older than Justin Bieber. I don't care about Justin Bieber. I don't care. How many of you would agree with me? Okay. So why are you showing him? We're experiencing, we're demonstrating cultural hegemony. Okay, now look at this. Who is this right here? Okay, how old is he? 33 years old, $20 million a year quarterback. And the cultural hegemony says, I'm going to get my hair cut to look like this doofer. <laughs> you got to take your brain out and play with it to want to look like that. Why? Uh, I like to watch golf. Now, I'm going to watch my bears beat him like pancake batter here a little bit later on tonight. And it's so interesting to see that this, this cultural influence, that's hegemony. I, I like to watch golf. I was watching this thing yesterday, and Bubba Watson, I got to meet him one time at a, at a golf show. Bubba Watson hits the ball a blue mile. I mean, just unbelievable. He's got hair like that. 20-some-year-old multimillionaire grown man looking like that. That's cultural hegemony. That's what it does. That's the thing that makes people punch holes in their faces. No one wakes up and says, I'm going to put a wing nut in my nose. I have a good idea. What am I going to do today? I'm going to put a washer in my ear. You know, I remember when I was five, maybe four, little kid, there were some beads. Mom had this beading thing kick. And I decided to put it up my nose. And then it became a problem, and we had to try and get it out, and it's really kind of a mess. We have pictures. Would you like to see? Just... Now, how many of you think that was a bad idea? All right, really bad idea. Grown people put holes in their faces. They put tattoos all over their bodies. Now, we could talk about Scripture on those things. But we don't need to. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to put a wing nut in my eyebrow. I pulled into Tim Hortons the other day, and I got, you know, I'm just going to get my donuts because it takes a lot to maintain this physique. And I pull in, I get to the window, and I, it was Halloween. And I looked up, and I go, oh, good night. Girl scared me to death. She had clothes, no, I mean, no, safety pins in her cheeks. I thought, I almost said, cool costume. It's hegemony. It's a move in the culture that causes people to do things that is a redefinition of beauty. 
I promise you, no one is going to hang a picture of a pierced lady in their house for beauty. Right? That's our culture. Christians are influenced by this culture. The thing with the Bieber cut, that can be changed. Tattoos are forever, man. The scars from these piercings, people are mutilating their bodies because of cultural hegemony. Somebody has to convince you that this is a cool thing to do. Right? Man, if you're not saved, I don't care if you make yourself look like a Chinese phone book. I don't care. But if you're saved, if you're born again, your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are advertising for Him, not for Deepak or whatever. You know, it's just... The, the, you are you belong to God. All right, let's get let's get intellectual here for a minute. George Louis Le Cirque, Comte de Buffon, seventeen o seven to seventeen eighty eight, was a French naturalist, mathematician, cosmologist, and encyclopedic author. His works influenced the next two generations of naturalists, including Jean Baptiste Lamarck and George Cuvier. All right, this is a guy who was a deist. He believed that God did create the world, but he just then he didn't have anything to do with it. He, he, he just put it out there. And so these ideas of naturalism come from people who are trying to find answers apart from God. James Hutton, 1726 to 1797, was a Scottish geologist, physician, and naturalist, chemist, and experimental farmer. He is considered the father of modern geology. He went to Jedburgh, Scotland, and he was on a vacation, and he saw that there were different layers along the river where he was. And so he was the father of billions of years of time. Well, he was a, a deist. He just didn't care about religion. And he was trying to rescue science from theology. Looking for answers apart from God. Pierre Simon, Marquis de Laplace, was a French mathematician and astronomer whose work was pivotal to the development of mathematical astronomy and statistics. Again, Laplace was a deist. This all becomes very important because we're going to get to Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell is the person who wrote Principles of Geology. I think he wrote it in 1827, and he wrote his Principles of Geology before he had ever actually gone out into the field to look at stones. Rock formations. And yet, this is the father of modern geology. This is a, that's the kind of great education that we are supposed to bow down to. All right? So again, this is a man who uh, really influenced the modern mind apart from God. This guy, Thomas Huxley, he, 1825 to 1895, he was um, Darwin's bulldog. He has two famous grandsons, Aldous Huxley and Julian Huxley, one of which wrote the famous... A brave new world. Um, Thomas Huxley. Here are some of the things that he said about God. What he did, I'm going to quote a man named Hurst here. Thomas Huxley hated Christianity, hated God, hated Christianity, loved the idea of naturalism. He himself was a scientist, all right? What he did, he and another man started a club called the X Club, not the X-Men. Don't get excited. The X Club. The X Club was mathematicians, physicists, and others, and they all had something in common. And I have it printed here for you. Hearst, one of the founders, he was a mathematician, I believe, could write that the bond that united us was devotion to science, pure and free, untrammeled by religious dogmas. 
In a similar vein, Franklin observed that all these colleagues of mine were of one mind on theological topics, going on to suggest with some optimism that the two of them, Huxley and Spencer, Herbert Spencer, Thomas Huxley, together with Darwin, are the three great modern evangelists whose literary work will guide the thoughts and actions of men long after the teachings of the four older evangelists have become obsolete. Who are the four older evangelists? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What they're going to do is they're going to establish a new orthodoxy. They're going to establish a new religious system known as secularism. They were going to remove God from the equation. And this X Club was so important because the National Academy of Sciences, these men helped choose the leaders of the National Academy of Sciences. These men influenced everything that happened in England and, by extension, the United States with their naturalism. And they had, they had uh, uh, declared war against God. Huxley, famous, said, extinguished theologians as opposed to distinguished. Extinguished theologians lie about the cradle of every science as the strangled snakes beside that of Hercules. And history records that wherever science and orthodoxy have been fairly opposed, the latter has been forced to, re have been forced to retire from the lists, bleeding and crushed, if not annihilated, scotched, if not slain. So what he's saying is whenever there's a controversy between Christianity and science, science always wins. That's his premise. But it's amazing. If we went and examined Huxley's science, nobody would believe the things that Huxley believes scientifically now. But God's word still stands. Amen? It's interesting. Time has proven him wrong. John Tyndall, another member of uh, this X Club, uh, he, he did a speech on religion and science in 1874. And uh, many took it as the manifesto for materialism. He said, the impregnable position of science may, be, may be described in a few words. We claim and we shall wrest from theology the entire domain of cosmological theory. So how the world exists, they are going to wrestle that from the domain of theology. So science will answer where the world came from, how it came to be, and how it continues to exist where it's going in the future. Science will wrestle that from theology and remove Christianity completely from the discussion. Now, one thing that we've got to talk about here is this. Some important distinction, important distinctions. One important distinction is this. Are we talking about science versus the Bible or scientists versus the Bible? See, there's no conflict between science and the Bible. Science is a study of that which is knowable. The Word of God is true and gives us supernatural information on that which is knowable. Science and the Bible are not in conflict. Naturalistic scientists and the Bible are in great conflict because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Amen? The Bible calls, the Bible calls that antipathy. The Bible calls that um, this animosity that comes from it. There's a word that I'm thinking of. It'll come to me in a minute. All right? Now, so the first distinction that we've got to understand is are we talking about science versus the Bible or scientists versus the Bible? The second distinction is are we speaking of science versus the Bible or science versus religion? 
this is really important. This is really important. Organized religion was the enemy of modern scientific thought. Anybody heard of Galileo? What happened to him? He had followed up Copernicus' theory, and the, the theory, there was, I don't have time to get into a lot of it, but Aristotelian physics had influenced the Catholic Church. And so the, and remember, you had the church controlled the government and the church controlled the institutions of learning. So if you went against the orthodoxy, you're going against the state, and so they would just kill you. So Copernicus, before his death, had realized by observation and mathematics that the Aristotelian position that the universe circles around the earth, geocentrism, that the, that the earth is the center of the world, he discern, discerned that that's wrong, that our universe is heliocentric and that the sun, everything revolves around the sun in our universe. Well, Galileo, because of the, in, the invention of the telescope, was able to observe this. The reason that it became a problem for Galileo was that they allowed it for Copernicus because it was only being presented as a mathematical theory. What Galileo was wanting to do was teach it as reality. And so he was put on trial. Now, there's some dispute as to whether or not he was tortured. But even if he was threatened with torture, how many of you think that's wrong for believing something? It's craziness. It's crazy. So... He denied his theory, but he was kept under house arrest until he died. Now, here's a weakness, again, in creation evangelism, modern creation evangelism. Here's a weakness in it. They feel like they have to defend the church against the onslaught of naturalistic science. And by defending the church... That means they have to defend what the Catholic Church did in history. We, as Baptists, remember our two lines of church history? We're outside of that. I agree with the naturalists on the church-state marriage. It's wrong. It's wicked. I read an essay by Herbert Spencer, the man who coined the term survival of the fittest, on Christian establishments. And he was talking about reasons why we've got to separate church and state. I agreed with everything he said on it. So we've got to understand that we don't ever feel like you've got to defend the Crusades. There's two lines of church history. Amen? Don't ever feel like you've got to defend the Catholic Church for persecuting Galileo and other scientists who came out against what was spoken of in Catholic dogma. Because there is no... There is no conflict between the Word of God and genuine science. God created it. You can go out and discover it. That's how Newton discovered gravity. That's, why, that's where his laws of motion came from. He believed in a creator, and it became his job to understand the order of the creation. Science has no conflict, but there is a huge conflict between religion and science, and there has been. And by diminishing this, don't miss it. Satan used that. Satan established the wicked church-state marriage, and he used that to drive these scientists away from Christianity. It happened, man. It happened. Don't feel like you've got to defend the Catholic Church against 
the onslaught of the scientists at that time. It really did happen. I don't have time to go into all the science that's in the Bible, but whether you're talking about the paths in the sea, the Bible talks about that. The lines on the earth, longitude and latitude, that's in the Bible. The fountains of the deep, before anybody knew it, the Bible said that they were there. The circle of the earth, when everybody thought the earth was flat, the Bible talks about the circle of the earth. The life that's in the blood, they bled out George Washington. They didn't believe the life was in the blood. The life of the body was in the blood. All of these things, uh, sanitary methods. The Jews lived during the Dark Ages. Well, Christians were dying because of the Bible's teachings on sanitary conditions. So many things that are in the Bible, way ahead of their time. The fact that the earth is hanging on nothing. The Bible said that in Job, the oldest book of the Bible. A long time before Copernicus came up with the ideas. The Bible had all of that information. All right. So, all schemes and systems which thus infringe upon the domain of science must, insofar as they do this, submit to its control and relinquish all thought of controlling it. Acting otherwise proved disastrous in the past and is simply fatuous today. That's Tyndall's statement. So, if anybody wants to impose any kind of control... If God wants to enter into the discussion at all, we've got to remove God from the discussion. All right? So here's what we ended up with, reductionism. Reductionism. Man came from an animal, which comes down to a mechanistic process. So that's modern science can now believe that it's all started with this big bang, and after the big bang, all of these processes came into being, and so man can be explained as a machine, naturalistic processes. Remember what we said in our Genesis study. The Big Bang teaches that in the beginning there was nothing, and then it exploded. Again, it's a ridiculous concept. Reductionism. That's what, that is the result of Huxley and the X Club and Darwin and Spencer. And so here's now what we come to. Nothing. Okay, we all help me with something? If I take 10 and add nothing to it, what do I have? What's nothing plus nothing? How many of you experienced that in your checking account? Okay. Nothing plus nothing is nothing. But this is reductionism. Nothing plus time plus chance equals everything. You've got to pay a lot of money to learn to think that way. That, this is almost as dumb as putting a wing nut in your cheek. Nothing plus time plus chance equals everything. That's the reductionism. Why do we get to that? All right? It's very simple. I'll use this pen. You see this pen, okay? So now I'm going to give you guys an assignment, all right? You two young geniuses, all right? Michael could figure it out, so I'm not going to ask him. You guys, I'm going to have you do this. All right. I want you to determine how this pen got here. No, you got, can't you follow instructions? You've got to wait until I finish giving you the assignment. Okay. You guys have to determine how this pen got here. But the one answer that you're not allowed to consider is that a human being made it. I mean, it could be, you know... Little bunny foo-foo dropped it out of an airplane. I mean, that's what you're going to come up with, right? The most ridiculous ideas will come from it because the most plausible and the most obvious is not allowed to be considered. 
That's how you get to nothing plus time plus chance equals everything. Francis Crick, the discoverer of DNA, he, you know, he, he famously said the chances of that DNA uh, just, just happening would be like a tornado going through a junkyard and spitting out a 747. What are the chances of that happening? And so because he rejects the existence of God, he says aliens seeded the planet with life. Little bunny foo-foo could have done it. So we bopped him on the head. It's no more sophisticated than that. I'm just telling you, I can't, you know, I don't know anything about physics, nothing. I can't even spell it. But I know that nothing plus time plus chance equals nothing. Uh, what one John, John Lennox, an Oxford scholar, he said this. The idea that mathematics can create anything is silly. So here's the idea. If I put $1,000 in my bank account one week, the next week I put another $1,000 in my checking account. We're not talking about interest or anything. I put the $1,000 in the bank this week, $1,000 in the bank next week. If I don't take any out, don't add anything to it, how much am I going to have? I can explain that very simply, right? But imagine... If I don't put anything in my checking account, 1,000 plus 1,000 equals 2,000, right? That's true. So if I wait long enough, how much money is going to be in my account? Huh? $2,000. What if I wait 2 billion years? $2,000. If I sit back and do nothing and wait for the money to grow in my account, I'm going to go bankrupt. Why? Because math just explains what's there. Math is the law that, that, that defines how action can take place. But math doesn't do anything. How many of you wish your math would do itself? <laughs> Students? Right? It doesn't. It doesn't. Trust me. I didn't do it, and I still don't know it. It doesn't just by osmosis come into your head. So look. That is what you get from reductionism. The simplest explanation for this amazingly designed universe is that there is a designer. That's the simplest explanation. Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is probably the right one. The simplest explanation is if you have design, there's probably a designer. Simplest explanation. To say that aliens did it. Who made the aliens? I'm not kidding. That's where it comes from. Now, we're going to talk about it tonight. We're going to look at Stephen Hawking. You know, the, the man with ALS, the famous physicist, the, the eminent phys physicist in the world, he can't talk. He has to speak through a, a, a little machine. Genius, just amazingly brilliant man. He believes that because gravity exists, that answers why everything is here. Really. Simple answer. If I say that Y created X, then just simple logic says that Y existed before X. Does that make sense? It's very simple. But if I say that X created X, that means that it existed before it created itself, and so it didn't need to be created. It's absolute silliness. So 
Gravity is not nothing. Gravity is something. To say that everything came out of nothing because of gravity, well, gravity is something. How many of you that makes your head hurt? It is, man. It's so absurd. But what that is, that is just like describing the creation of the pen apart from any human agency you come up with absurdity. The idea of looking at the universe from a naturalistic perspective, only looking at an- looking for answers, rejecting the existence of God, rejecting the existence of any supernatural forces. And what people come up with is they say there is no evidence for creation in the fossil record. How many of you have ever heard somebody say that? Well, yeah, it's just like those young men. Tell me how the, how the pen got here, but you can't say that men did it. Of course there's no evidence for creation in the fossil record if you never place creation beside the fossil record. Self-defeating argument. So we have to understand that is the beginning of where we are. Um, th- this will end it. The origin of, Christian, of, of evolution in Christianity. Remember our two lines of church history? Remember the guy that brought about the corruption of the Scriptures? Remember the guy that brought about the allegorical method of Scripture interpretation? Remember the guy that brought about anti-Semitism in Christianity? Remember the guy that brought about the idea that there's no millennium? Remember his name, Origen? Origen's the father of evolutionary thought in Christianity. Isn't he a great guy? He's a great guy. This is from Modern Creation Trilogy by John Morris. This desire to find allegories in Scripture was carried to excess by Origen, 185 to 254, who was likewise associated with Alexandrian thought, and he managed thereby to get rid of anything which could not be harmonized with pagan learning, such as the separation of the waters from above the firmament from those below it, mentioned in Genesis, which he takes to mean that we should separate our spirits from the darkness of the abyss, where the adversary has his angels dwell. So what he did, he immediately questioned the reality of the creation narrative in Genesis. He is the one, Origen, going all the way back to the early 200s, who in the history of Christianity corrupted it. Do you know who carried that through? You're not going to be surprised. This again is from John Morris. During this period, it is significant that several of the church fathers expressed ideas of organic evolution, even though the trend of ecclesiastical thought, that's, that's Christian or church, thought led more readily into other lines of reasoning. St. Gregory of Nyssa, 331 to 396, St. Basil, St. Augustine, and St. Thomas Aquinas expressed belief in the symbolical nature of the biblical story of creation and in their comments made statements clearly related to the concept of evolution. Why is it that the Pope, the last Pope, came out and said that he believed in evolution? Why could he do that? Because the father of the Roman Catholic Church, Augustine, believed that. It it wasn't true history. But here's here's where the problem comes in. Here's where the problem comes in, and I'm done. Can you believe that? We're excited. The Bible says, For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Why do we need a Redeemer? Because Adam fell in the garden. If Adam didn't fall in the garden, then there's no original sin. If there's no original sin, then you and I don't need a Redeemer. The basis for our Christianity is found in the Genesis account of history. 
It's so vitally important. Augustine undermined that. Origen undermined it. Thomas Aquinas undermined it. And yet, if you just simply believe the book that's in your hand, God gives you the meaning of life. Amen? What a wonderful thing. The man who declared God is dead, Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, he was the at the end of the 1800s. His father was a clergyman, and uh, he decided that he was going to kill God. He hated God. He hated God. He wrote the book, The Madman, and this was the man that, that went around crying that God was dead, and he ended up going mad. The last 13 years of his life, something like that, his godly mother sat by his side and took care of him because he was insane. The simple fact is, with no God, there's no hope. With no God, there's no joy. With no God, there's no life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Amen? This is foundational truth. When you understand those two lines of church history, modern science excluding God in the search for answers. That's where our whole culture has gone. The, the, maybe we can talk about it tonight. I don't know. This whole idea of compartmentalism in society. When, that's why you've got to go to, a, to one person to talk about your finances. You've got to go to another place to talk about your counseling. You've got to go to another place to talk about the law. You've got to go to it's this compartmentalization. And because of that, we know nothing. We know nothing. If you ask a scientist a question outside of their field, you know what they're going to say? That's not my field. So you can't know it? See, the Bible says you can know the truth and truth can make you free. This theology was called the queen of the sciences because... Scripture is what brought unity to the diversity. That's where the word university comes from. Scripture, theology, brought unity to the diverse subjects. You remove this, and the unity is gone. And now you've got all of these disparate, all of these disconnected disciplines, and that's why anything goes. Man, scientists make terrible philosophers. Amen? And they make even worse theologians. Science can't tell you why you're here or where you're going. The Word of God can. And the Word of God is what gives us the key to understand science, not the other way around. Einstein was famous for saying, you can read about and you can discuss the ethical foundation of science, but you can never read about the scientific foundation of ethics. Einstein said that. Galileo, do you know what he said? The Bible tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. You see, because of a wrong imposition of the Scriptures, it drove Galileo from confidence in the Word of God. It's not supposed to go that way, man. That ends up in modern science, searching for answers, excluding God. I talked about the cultural hegemony, you know, Bieber. Another illustration of that is grown men wearing skinny jeans. Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> Cultural hegemony. Now, that whole idea of the hegemony, the, re, the, the basis of that, that's what Thomas Huxley and the X Club, that was their goal, and they succeeded in establishing a cultural hegemony where you had a scientific elite imposing pressure, the cool people imposing pressure away from God in the sciences. And so theologians retreated to their theology 
and removed themselves from the battlefield of ideas in science. And so now we have a whole, a whole world against God in the scientific arena. Um, it's a very dangerous thing. That's that hegemony. Don't miss that. That's the significance of Huxley and that X Club. Taking the world, uh, the, the German word is a zeitgeist, the spirit of the world away from any theological input to a purely naturalistic view. All right.